Well, I'd like to uh, turn your attention now to the book of 1 Corinthians. We come back to this book that we have been studying for a number of uh, months. I think we began uh, last year in January in 2010. And now we're on chapter 14 of 1 Corinthians chapter 14. We will be covering a, a rather large section of text this morning. It is on the subject of tongues, prophecy, and orderliness in worship. A section that is challenging to say the least, but a section that uh, has application to us even though there may be some things that are pertinent particularly to the church at Corinth. 1 Corinthians chapter 14 verses 20 through 40. 1 Corinthians chapter 14 verses 20 through 40. The scriptures read, Brethren, do not be children in your thinking, yet in evil be infants, but in your thinking be mature. In the law it is written, By men of strange tongues and by the lips of strangers I will speak to this people, and even so they will not listen to me, says the Lord. So then, tongues are for a sign. Not to those who believe, but to unbelievers. But prophecy is for a sign, not to unbelievers, but to those who believe. Therefore, if the whole church assembles together and all speak in tongues, and ungifted men or unbelievers enter, will they not say that you are mad? But if all prophesy and an unbeliever or an ungifted man enters, he is convicted by all. He is called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed, and so he will fall on his face and worship God, declaring that God is certainly among you. What is the outcome then, brethren? When you assemble, each one has a psalm, has a teaching, has a revelation, has a tongue, has an interpretation. Let all things be done for edification. If anyone speaks in a tongue, it should be by two or at the most three. And each in turn, and one must interpret. But if there is no interpreter, he must keep silent in the church. And let him speak to himself and to God. Let two or three prophets speak, and let the others pass judgment. But if a revelation is made to another who is seated, the one first one must keep silent. For you can all prophesy one by one, so that all may learn and all may be exhorted. And the spirits of prophets are subject to prophets. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. And in all the churches of the saints, the women are to keep silent in the churches. For they are not permitted to speak, but are to subject themselves, just as the law also says. If they desire to learn anything, let them ask their own husbands at home. For it is improper for a woman to speak in church. Was it from you that the word of God first went forth? Or has it come to you only? If anyone thinks he is a prophet or spiritual, let him recognize that the things which I write to you are the Lord's commandment. But if anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. Therefore, my brethren, desire earnestly to prophesy. Do not forbid to speak in tongues. But all things must be done properly and in an orderly manner. 
Let's bow in a word of prayer before we begin our study once again. Our Father in heaven, we come before you. You are the one who grants to us knowledge and insight, who opens our hearts that we might understand and know you. So God, we pray that you would open the eyes of our heart, that we might see great and mighty things from thy word. Fill us with your spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The Associated Press had an article a number of years ago regarding an incident that happened. Virginia's Henrico County school system decided to get rid of 1,000 laptop computers. Four-year-old Apple iBooks. The public was invited to buy them for $50 each. People began lining up hours before the sale. By the time the gates opened at 7 a.m., quote, a terrifying mob scene took place. Although most injuries were minor, a child's stroller was crushed and an elderly man was thrown to the ground. Jesse Sandler was one of the winners. He ended up with an iBook, but not without a fight. Sandler beat people with the folding chair he had brought along. Quote, I took my chair here and I threw it over my shoulder and I went, bam, the 20-year-old said nonchalantly, his eyes glued to the screen of his new iBook as he tapped away on the keyboard testing station. They were getting in front of me and I was there a lot earlier than them, so I thought it was just. doesn't take much to create chaos, does it? It doesn't take much to create a mob like in 2003 when Kevin Shelton, who was also called the money man at that time, threw $10,000 in $2 bills to a crowd in a courtyard below of 500 people in St. Petersburg, Florida, causing a stampede for $2 bills. Or just wait, it's only about four months away before Black Friday comes Line up in front of Walmart or Fry's and you'll experience what chaos is like. There's something like that that's not unto unlike what happens often in the world. When there's money involved or some sort of a conflict, there's chaos and a mob and confusion. Looking back some 2,000 years ago, however, at the Corinthian church, the confusion and the chaos and Everybody doing their own thing, trying to gain the limelight of what they wanted. That was what their worship service was like. Disorderly, rambunctious, people jockeying for position, power. We know that in the Corinthian church throughout this letter, as we've been studying it, people were factioned off into their little groups. They were suing one another. They were prideful of the fact that they had accepted immorality into the church. They were vying for the gifts of the spirits that were more outspoken, upfront, popular, particularly the gift of tongues. And as we've been looking at it in chapter 12, as well as in this chapter... We see that Paul's corrective letter here is sent to them because of the confusion that would reign within the worship service. 
So as we look in this passage, we see Paul establishes in the first half a dozen verses, in 20 to 25, that tongues really are not as important as they made them out to be. In fact, it was secondary to that gift of prophecy. And secondly, he gives them instructions on how the worship service was to be. That which was to be orderly and done in a proper manner. So we look at this first section as Paul corrects them about their own thinking. For they thought perhaps the the showier gifts were more important. The ones that had a greater display. That of tongues. So he says to them in verse 20. Don't be children in your thinking. Yet in evil be infants. But in your thinking be mature. When it comes to worship and the worship service, they were to be clear thinkers, level-headed. They were to be people who thought and were orderly in their worship. Not led by their feelings or some emotional ecstasy. Not simply some type of mystical sensing of God as was common perhaps in the pagan worship of that time. They were to be clear and reasonable. And to prioritize that which God believed was, or that which God taught was the highest priority. And he began by explaining to them that the role of tongues was for judgment or for a sign for unbelievers. For he says here, it is written by men of strange tongues and by the lips of strangers. Verse 21, I will speak to this people and even so they will not listen to me, says the Lord. The first thing he says about tongues is that they were a sign. They were a sign. A sign to unbelievers. Some 15 years or so before Isaiah prophesied about the tongues from the lips of strangers, the northern kingdom of Israel had been conquered and taken captive by the Assyrians. You see, when Israel came out of the promised land, they had come, out of, had come into the promised land and out of Egypt and wandering in the wilderness. There were 12 tribes and they wanted a king and the Lord gave them a king. They chose a king. They chose King Saul, who really was a disaster. Self-willed, wanted to do his own will. After King Saul was King David. David was a man after God's own heart. And after David passed away, there was King Solomon, his son, who was a very wise man. And yet he had his shortcomings too. But after those three kings, the nation of Israel divided into the northern and the southern kingdom. The northern kingdom composed of ten tribes, and those ten tribes, none of the kings followed after God. And God judged them. And in 722 B.C., God judged them through the Assyrians who came and conquered the people. That foreign tongue that had come to defeat them. And then in 586, because the tribes of Judah and Benjamin, the southern kingdom had not walked with God in obedience, God judged them as well. Through the Babylonians and other people of strange tongues came in. And then, later on, when we see in the New Testament, the Jews had not turned to God, and in AD 70, God sent His judgment through Rome to destroy the temple, causing... Over one million Jews to be slaughtered, thousands taken captive, 
the plundering of the temple destroyed and the rest of the city was burned to the ground. All of these were signs of God's judgment brought on by people of a foreign tongue. Fulfillment of the prophecy that Isaiah had given here. Tongues were a sign. They were a sign of impending judgment, of judgment that had come, perhaps. Isaiah had prophesied, and Paul uses that to share with them. It is a sign to unbelievers. We see, as we've seen in the past weeks, too, that that, that tongues were also a sign. They were a sign that the inclusion of those who were Samaritans, those who were God-fearers, those who were Jews, those who were Gentiles, were also included in the kingdom program. That they were going to be included in the plan of salvation. For those four groups were the groups that people wondered, Jewish Christians wondered, how do they fit into this grand plan of God? Now that we know Jesus has died on the cross, what happens to all of these others? And as the apostles went about and they shared the gospel or they they had people who placed their faith and received the Holy Spirit, they would speak in tongues confirming that they were a part of God's plan of salvation. And thirdly, it was a sign to authenticate the message that they had brought. To authenticate the message that was brought on by the apostles and the prophets. Validated by signs and wonders and miracles as 2 Corinthians 12.12 and Romans 15.19 tell us. So tongues were a sign. They were a sign of that time. And when a sign has been fulfilled... You don't see that sign anymore. When a mother is expecting a child, she has birth pangs or signs that the baby is going to come. After the child comes, she doesn't continue to have those for the rest of her life. Or when you came here, most of you probably came on I-90. You saw a sign, exit 13, West Lake Sammamish Parkway, southeast. And you saw a sign. Once you pass that exit, you don't see another sign that says it's one mile behind you. You'd better turn around. Unless, of course, like maybe my folks who have a GPS system which always says recalculating, recalculating, because they've missed some turn. Signs are given for a period of time until they are fulfilled and then it no longer exists. Prophecy is for believers, though, as he says in verse 22. Prophecy, and notice in the text says, is for a sign. And it's italicized there in the NASB. Not to unbelievers, but to those who believe. The words were added there is for a sign, is perhaps implied. But literally it reads, but prophecy, not for unbelievers, but for those who believe. The proclamation of the word of God through those who are gifted is for believers. And remember, when we talk about prophecy, it is in perhaps two cases in which it is used primarily. The foretelling of God's new revelation of what God has and the proclamation of the known Word of God. Of course, now that we have the Word of God completed in the Bible, there is no more necessity for that which is new revelation. New revelation has ceased And yet people continue today to say that there is additional revelation to the Bible, which simply is not true. But there is the proclamation of the known word of God. And in both cases, there were prophets there in the city of Corinth and the Corinthian church in which they proclaimed what God was saying. 
And for that, the word of God was for the believer. It was for those who were believers that they would be built up, edified. The term for unbelievers is fairly clear. It says if an unbeliever comes in or an ungifted individual, an unbeliever is simply somebody who does not believe. An ungifted man comes from the Greek word idiotes, meaning an outsider, one who is unlearned. It's the root word for one of our slang terms that we use here. Basically, the idea is some stranger. And the reason Paul states these things is because the effect of tongues and the effect of prophecy on the church is wholly different. The purpose is wholly different. Tongues was a sign for unbelievers. Prophecy was to build up the believers and it brought conviction to those who came in. And he continues on saying, if there was an unbeliever or somebody who who was just walking on in, who was just curious and they came in and they heard all of these people speaking in tongues, which is a known language, that they couldn't understand they would say all of these people speaking at once they're crazy and they would walk out but if somebody came in and they were visiting and they heard the word of God being proclaimed they would say to themselves I understand and they would be convicted the scriptures say they would be convicted and this passage explains that that priority then implies that prophecy was more important. The proclamation was more important of the Word of God than that of people speaking in a language that others didn't understand. And it implies a number of things. It implies that having those who were non-Christians or unbelievers within the church at the New Testament times was unusual. It wasn't a regular occurrence. It wasn't the primary purpose by which the church held its service. It was rather the minority. The church gathers to be edified of all the believers There may be some that we may have here that don't know the Lord. They're more than welcome, of course. But it wasn't the purpose. The purpose was to worship God by the gathering of the saints or the believers. Secondly, it implies that a worship service contains the proclamation of the Word of God. It is through the preaching of the Word of God. It is not... Meant to be entertaining. It is not all about the music. It is not some comedy routine or some show by which the people of God gather. It is for the proclamation of the Word of God. Thirdly, repentance comes from the Word of God. Repentance comes from the Word of God. It doesn't come from some emotionally charged time. It doesn't come from good skits. Clever stories. It comes because the Word of God is understood and it convicts the heart. So Paul establishes here that prophecy, the proclamation of the word of God is more important than tongues. And there was to be orderliness in all that happens. Verse 26. He says to them, what is the outcome then, brethren, when you assemble? Each one has a psalm, a teaching, a revelation, tongue, interpretation. The implication is that people within the Corinthian church were jockeying for center stage or were spouting off their own, whatever it was, psalm or teaching or revelation. Speaking out of turn, it was disorderly, it was chaotic. It wasn't building others up. That is why Paul corrects them and says, let all be done for edification. There was to be orderliness in the church. 
First of all, orderliness when it comes to tongues. He gives instruction. Should be done by two or three at the most, and each in turn, and one must interpret. There were tongues. It was to be orderly by two or three. It was always to be interpreted. This known language was to be interpreted by somebody who knew that language, who had the gift perhaps of interpretation, or perhaps that individual in themselves was able to interpret But there was not to be this tongue speaking, which when you turn on the television and you turn to channel 20 or whatever you have there and you see all of these people who will speak in one chaotic manner, tongues all over the place without interpreters. Some churches are like that today. There was to be order in the proclamation or the giving of some type of revelation in tongues at that time. Then there was to be orderliness in prophecy. It says, let two or three prophets speak and let the others pass judgment. But if a revelation is made to another who is seated, the first one must keep silence. Once again, there is correction. There is instruction for those who had the gift of prophecy. They were to limit the number of prophets. They were to do it in order or yield to another prophet who may have an interpretation. They were to judge the prophecies that were given and they were to do it in an orderly manner. Prophets in the Bible were often those who gave new revelation, as I mentioned. But in the time of Paul, as you you know, they were there in existence with the rest of the apostles, giving new revelation or perhaps teaching revelation that already had been given. And we looked before Ephesians 2.20, which says that the church was established upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. And at the beginning of the church, they were there and they established the church. And once the church has been established, they passed on from the scene. Though the proclamation of the word of God continues on today, new revelation, new revelation that is outside of the scriptures doesn't continue to happen. The ministry of preaching continues, but they were to judge these people They were to judge. The other prophets were. They were discerning and it was necessary that they would not be deceived by false prophets who would come into the church. And the purpose, it says here, was twofold, that they may learn and also be exhorted. Exhorted means to be strongly encouraged. If you are exhorting somebody, you're strongly encouraging them not to do something or to do something else. They were to be exhorted. And the second purpose was to learn. Second purpose was to learn. One of the things that I've always asked myself was, am I a teachable individual? Am I continually open to learning? Because some people don't want to learn. They are closed to it. No matter what you do, they feel they can only learn from certain individuals or or they can learn only in certain contexts and they're not very teachable. The purpose of the Word of God is so that we might learn, so that our minds might be conformed not to this world, but be transformed. So when the Word of God is opened, we are to take that encouragement and to learn. And the basis of Paul's instruction here of orderliness is based upon who God is. For it says in verse 33, For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace, as in all the churches of the saints. You see, there wasn't to be chaos 
There wasn't to be confusion. There wasn't to be bedlam. Our worship of God is to be orderly. It is to be reflective of the nature of God. Do you ever wonder why there is such careful instruction in the Old Testament about how the priests were to do things, what they were to wear, how everything was to be so set? It's not only, it was not only for the purpose that people might realize they could never fulfill it, thus convicting them of sin, but it's also reflective of the orderliness of God. And I remember learning about this as a little boy, reading this passage and thinking to myself, God is a God of order. Now, how do I apply that? My goodness, my little bedroom needs to be placed in order. If Jesus had a bedroom, he'd better clean it up too. God is a God of order in the way that we keep our lives, the way that we do things. The way that we run our lives is to be orderly. It's not to be chaotic. It's not to be strewn here and there. We should note the way that we do things is to be reflective of God and that is to be reflective in the worship service as well. And then Paul addresses that of the orderliness of women in worship. The order within the Godhead is to be reflected in the church. Not only in the exercise of tongues and prophecy, but also in the role women had in the church. It says in verse 34, the women are to keep silent in the churches for they are not permitted to speak, but are to subject themselves just as the law also says. Now, in regards to this passage, it's one of these passages has garnered a lot of attention because when misunderstood, it can evoke strong reactions. Many people have tried to interpret this in various ways. Some have completely dismissed it saying that it is a gloss. Many people who do not believe in inerrancy believe it's a gloss. And when you read that in scholarly writings, you know that a gloss is a, is a word that means that somebody later on inserted this into Paul's writing. Like you might put a, a little thing there and put a, a footnote and write in something or correct some of the manuscripts, so to speak. They would say that it's a gloss, that it's really not Paul. They try to rescue Paul from himself. They say this is not Paul and they have inserted it somehow. And so they dismiss that as part of the word of God. Again, those who do not hold to the inerrancy of scripture tend to do things like that. Others will bind it to some cultural or historical context. And it's a group of interpretations that will posit the idea that, well, there's perhaps a group of noisy women there or women who are uneducated, or women who are exploiting their emancipation and exercising their freedoms in some sort of disruptive way. But all of those are rather unsatisfying conjectures, though, because we don't quite know due to the text. There are others who take it to the other extreme, though, and they say, well, all women ought to be silent. And never ask any questions, never speak up, never say a word, as it says right there. In fact, I remember there's one group I remember hearing about where the women can't even suggest a, a psalm to sing when they're in a small group. Then some say it refers only to wives, because in 1 Corinthians 7, it, Paul has a bias towards those who are single. Here he addresses those who are wise because if they wish to learn something, they should ask their husbands. 
While other commentators, they don't deal with it at all. They pass it on as if it's a hot potato. But there is a reasonable interpretation that is fair to the context of the passage itself, which D.A. Carson posits and I believe is very viable. And of course, the presupposition is, is that everything here is the Word of God. This is what the Word of God speaks and it is inerrant. But the context of the passage sits in this section about orderliness in worship. Orderliness in worship. And we've seen how tongues is to be conducted in an orderly manner. Prophecy is to be conducted in an orderly manner. And again, prophecy being the proclamation of the Word of God. And now in 1 Corinthians, we see he addresses this thing about women. And we wonder why. Like tongues and prophecy, it was also to be orderly. We know, though, by 1 Corinthians 11.5, Paul says there, But every woman who has her head uncovered while praying or prophesying disgraces her head, for she is one and the same as the woman whose head is shaven. In other words, there was the allowance for women to proclaim what God had revealed to them as maybe they were a prophetess at that time. There's appropriateness in that time when a woman would prophesy. So we know it's not forbidding any type of verbal type of speaking. We know it's not a complete prohibition not to say a word because they still had new revelation coming. However, when it came to the preaching ministry and the evaluation of the prophecies that were going on, there was to be orderliness. There were guidelines. And at that time, there was a guideline that they should not publicly, verse 29, judge that particular prophecy, disruptively judging what that prophecy was publicly. Because you see, the instruction for prophets was that what? Somebody would stand up, they would give a prophecy, and then another might uh, appropriately add or correct or clarify whatever that was. Because a prophet would expound upon the Word of God. They were not to do that. If there was some objection or some sort of question, they were to ask their husbands. In other words, public declarations were to be judged by other prophets and that judgment was to be made by the other men within the congregation. And you can imagine what kind of strife it might cause. If a particular person was a, was, a, was a husband and he was a prophet and he gave a prophecy and he went on for about ten minutes and then his wife stood up next to him and said, well, that's not exactly right. You know, he's got it wrong here. He's got this and this and this and such. It would undermine his spiritual leadership and authority, embarrassing him in the process. It would be the usurpation of the spiritual authority and the role that God had placed upon men. So, in summary, what does it mean and how does it apply? It means that when there's a proclamation of the Word of God in the gathered corporate worship assembly, it's inappropriate for the usurpation of that judgment of that in a public way by women. We don't have that type of a thing here where people will stand up and say, Pastor Joe, you're wrong. Rather, we have it perhaps... In the context that was there, prophets would stand up and speak and each would give a particular revelation and it would be added, clarified or corrected by other prophets. 
And what Paul is saying that it's inappropriate for women to participate in that correction. They may give a prophecy or, or say what God has said. But that would undermine if they publicly judged and corrected the God-given role and responsibility that God had placed upon the men. That implies a number of things in practical application. Implies that there is to be order in the church. Not just in spiritual gifts, but implies what Paul is saying, that there is to be order in the church in regards to men and women. Secondly, implies that the responsibility of spiritual leadership in the church was given to the men. That's not to say that women are less gifted, less articulate, or less educated. I know many women, some of the best women, uh, that some of the best teachers I've had when I was younger were women, were a whole lot smarter or spiritually sensitive. But it's God's pattern in the church that the preaching and proclamation of God's word in the church today is to be by the men. There may be women who may be ministering and proclaiming God's word to other women or whatnot, but 1 Timothy chapter 2 also reminds us of the responsibility that has been given to the men. Thirdly, husbands are held responsible for the spiritual leadership of the family. If they're believers and you're a husband, it's a cop-out. I believe it's a cop-out to always say, well, I don't know, but why don't you ask Pastor Joe? Or it's a cop-out to say, don't ask me. You ask them what the sports scores are, they'll know. But to say, oh, well, you've got to ask somebody else for whatever spiritual questions you have. No, it's their responsibility that they hold to be able to guide their families in the ways of God. They're not going to know everything. Nobody's going to know everything. But you can go and you can find out. Or you can come along with your wife to find out and to learn. Whatever the case is, husbands are spiritually responsible to lead their families. Fourthly, not only is there implications that there be order in the church, that the responsibility of spiritual leadership in the church has been given to men, and husbands are held responsible for their spiritual leadership, but fourthly, wives are to follow that spiritual leadership of the husband as long as it is in the Lord. For whatever reason... Some wives may just resist, regularly resist the leadership, the spiritual leadership of their husbands. Not wanting to do family devotions, not wanting to serve the Lord together or multiple excuses not to study the word of God. And they always have a reason by which their husband has tried to encourage them in the word of God. And yet they're unresponsive. There is a responsibility of wives to follow that leadership because he desires to guide in a way that is good. So whether in this church or as 1 Timothy 2 or other passages such as Ephesians 5 about husbands and wives teach us about the differences in the roles of men and women, there is to be order, there is to be peace within the church and the family. And just so that he knows, just so that the Corinthians would know, this is not Paul's opinion. Paul supports his opinion in the coming verses, verse 37 and 38. If anyone thinks he is a prophet or spiritual, let him recognize that the things which I write to you are the Lord's commandment, are the Lord's commandment. But if anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. In other words, it's not Paul's opinion. It's not Paul's bias. 
It is not because of a cultural type of reason. These are commandments from the Lord. Because He knew. You correct people who believe that the gift of tongues continues on today even. They may say, you are off your rocker. You're totally wrong. And be offended and not like you. Correct somebody who may believe that prophecy even continues today or... Tell me back then, he knew that writing these things, whether about women and men within the church, can evoke strong negative reaction, a resistance, especially if the church has been doing it for a long time. And he points to them, and he points to them to the fact that it is God who instructs these things. And if anyone doesn't recognize this, he is not recognized. A play on words meaning simply, don't believe it. Don't recognize it. And for us, it's important to take note that there are difficult things that sometimes need to be taught or said or instructed. And it is not by consensus of the general public. It is by the authority of God. And so when we look at the Word of God, we submit ourselves to the Word of God. This is an objective standard outside of ourselves that we submit ourselves under. It's funny, I read an article or a little brief thing about that was in the L.A. Times a number of years ago, uh, called a, a new religion. It was invented by a Massachusetts psychologists. It's been gaining popularity or, or, over the recent years. It's called Yoism, the system of beliefs that is based upon the open source principle. Those of you who are in the high tech field know what this is, where the general public becomes a combined creative authority and a source of truth. For instance, you know that open source would be something like uh, Wikipedia or some of the operating systems, the open source OSs, the phenomenon where people just kind of contribute in a community and everybody believes they, 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 they have accolades to people like uh, Albert Einstein and Bob Dylan and Sigmund Freud, who are the revered saints. Dan Kriegman, who founded Yoism in 94, said, I don't think anyone has ever complained about something that didn't lead to some revision or clarification in the book of Yo. Every aware, conscious, sentient spirit is divine and has direct access to truth. Open source embodies that. There is no authority. That was characteristic of the Corinthian church. Very little authority that was there. Because everyone was doing whatever they thought was spiritual in their own eyes. Whatever they fit. It's kind of like our postmodern age where we say, if it doesn't offend you, does it offend me? As long as it doesn't step on my desires of what I feel is right, then it's okay. The objective Word of God, Paul appeals to here. What I write to you, he says, is the Lord's commandment. Unless they think he's discrediting all prophecy and all tongues, he says here, desire earnestly to prophesy and do not forbid speaking in tongues. In other words, they were to continue. They were to continue to seek earnestly for the proclamation of the Word of God because its effect upon people was to edify, to build up, that people might be convicted, that those who don't know Christ would come to the Lord. They were to desire that. Don't forbid speaking in tongues, even though it's not as important. Don't forbid speaking in tongues, he says, as that sign gift that had existed 
And as I mentioned before, it's a sign that has passed because of its fulfillment of purpose. But today, preaching is often downplayed, isn't it? Preaching is often downplayed to things such as entertainment or music as a central part of worship. I remember this one, this one lady called the office and she asked about our worship service and she was, she was asking about how much time do you spend in singing? And I said, well, I don't know. You know, we have a number of songs at the beginning, maybe 15, 20 minutes or whatever. We have some music at the end. We have some special music. But preaching takes up most of the time, maybe 45 minutes or so. And she says, oh, I don't know why people just don't have more music. After all, what do you think we'll be doing in heaven? I thought to myself, we won't be singing all the time. The caricature of you receiving a harp and wings sitting on a cloud with a halo is only on Hallmark cards. Worship is not relegated to singing. Worship in the scriptures is part of what we do as a life. Serving God, giving to God, learning from God, worshiping God. Not only in music, but in the Word and through ministry, we'll be completing whatever God-given responsibilities we have. God gives to us. So do you know what makes peace and unity in the church as Paul has been imploring them to have? What makes peace and unity in the church is harmony and like-mindedness. It's like our worship team today. They've done a wonderful job. But what if Barry decided he was just going to pound whatever he wanted to? And they're the young guys. They're new, you know. They decided they were just going to go off on that electric guitar. And the others, they wanted to sing harmony to whatever song they wanted to while Anson was reading the scriptures. It would sound awful. And Ron would put the stop to it. Turn off the AV system. (laughs) There's harmony when all is an orderly service. And that's how the Corinthians were to be. And Paul tells them, be mature. Don't be like a little child who thinks immature thoughts, who thinks whatever you want, you can do. Whenever you want to do it, he doesn't say that. Be orderly when it comes to tongues or prophecy or the role of men and women because in the proclamation primarily of the Word of God, it convicts of sin, it convicts people and builds them up. And we're to pursue, pursue the gifts that build up the body, not exemplifying those who can do particular things well because they were showboating their gifts. And in humility, he says, do what edifies the body. All things, he says in verse 40, must be done properly and in an orderly manner. Let's bow together in a word of prayer. Our God in heaven, we are grateful for your word. Lord, we believe that you have granted to us the privilege of coming to worship You. And Father, may we do so in an orderly and a proper manner. And even in our lives, Lord, the way that we conduct ourselves, the way that we live our lives, the way that we manage our families, the way that we manage the things that You have given to us, Our own walk with you, O God, may it be in an orderly and a proper manner, reflecting you. For you are not a God of chaos, but one of peace. We praise you, O God, for that. In Jesus' name.